This is an ABC podcast. Well, Norman, one thing that I don't mind about this pandemic easing off a little bit is that the borders are open, people are travelling again, which means I have gotten to see you in real life a little bit more than I ever got to in the first two years. Yeah, you're regretting it? <laughs> not at all, no. I'm not regretting it either. It's very nice. Well, that's a relief. But we are far apart again today as we're recording this coronacast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor on Yagara and Turrbal land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan coming to you from Wurundjeri land. And it's Wednesday, the 19th of October, 2022. And Norman, I don't know if you remember far enough back to your school days. I'm sure it's, it's a very recent memory in your mind. And there's always that moment where you get your report card at the end of the term and you wonder if you actually sort of did as well as you hoped you did. Well, well you're bringing me out in a cold sweat now. <laughs> well, Australia's report card is in for how we really did with COVID. There's been a study published in the Lancet Regional Health with some of the leading public health experts in Australia who've really just gone through and looked at how we responded, how we did, and then also the way how we responded and how we did affected our Pacific neighbours as well. Yeah, it's been a big push on for a for a Royal Commission and these, this group of researchers have just got together and said, well, we'll do it. And they did it with a policy development unit or a policy analyst unit, I should say, at the University of Sydney and others, and really surveying the opinions and views of a wide range of experts in, in various areas about various aspects of our response to the pandemic. And it's quite a useful set of lessons and a good point of evaluation. If we get a Royal Commission, we'll hear much more, no doubt, but this is a good start. So they've come up with 10 key lessons. I don't know if we want to sort of rattle through all of them, but what do you, what do you sort of think are the top two or three? Look, I, it's hard to actually separate them out. The one that really gets me, but that's my personal obsession, which is about national data. They acknowledge that the data weren't as good as they should have been during this pandemic and that there needs to be just much better focus on national data on health and this sort of disease surveillance. But the reason why that's one of your personal obsessions is because you've worked in health reporting for such a long time. You see it's not just COVID. That's a sort of system that affects basically every disease that we encounter, whether it's a communicable one or something like diabetes. Yeah, and we need tight feedback loops to improvement and where the gaps are, how well the system's responding, how well people are getting better. There's all sorts of things. And we've got a lot of data in Australia, but we're getting better at linking it together and bringing it together. And we've got better privacy options to protect the data there so that people can go in and interrogate the data. But we have reverted to pre-COVID times with the COVID data, for example, and we don't seem to have learned that lesson. The other lesson I think that uh, we've talked about before is that we need better global surveillance. There are going to be more pandemics that come as spillovers from animals. We're already dealing with monkeypox as the second pandemic since COVID started. And we need better monitoring of, for example, potential spillovers and international surveillance programs where a, a threat in one part of the world is highlighted and there's an intervention if that's possible. And going along with that, another one of their key points was that epidemics should be recognised as a standing threat. So just because this one might be maybe petering out a little bit, we're certainly not in, the, in as intense a phase as we were a year and a half ago, but that epidemics are always going to be a threat that we should be alert to. Yeah, and we're living in an epidemic generator or a pandemic generator at the moment, the globe, because we are knocking down natural environments to farm in those environments we have 
intense pressure on food supply. There are 9 billion chickens, 1 billion pigs thereabouts, often being farmed together, birds and bats flying overhead and pooping on them with humans uh, farming them. And in, in areas where you're exposed to animals that humans in large numbers have not been exposed before. Um, and in sitting in the background, we have new technologies like CRISPR, gene editing, where you could actually have the next pandemic, could indeed be one that comes from a lab and it could be intentional. So there are lots of threats around and we need to get our global act together. And at the moment, unfortunately, with China going the way it's going in terms of an increase in authoritarianism, Russia, the war in Europe, fragility of democracy in the United States, we don't necessarily have a good global environment for early detection of global threats. Mm, that sort of collectivism that we need. So what about Australia's performance specifically? Early on, especially in the pandemic, Australia had some pretty public interventions, things like lockdowns, border closures, and then then later on the vaccine rollout. How do these experts think that we went with those? Well, they acknowledge that border closures were a good thing to do, um, certainly international borders. I mean, that prevented a lot of infection getting in. It possibly could have been broader earlier. They talk about need to understand border closures and lockdowns better so they could be more tailored for effectiveness of response. The implication is that they were too blunderbuss. Hard to know how you could have tailored it better, where in New South Wales, where they tried to tailor it, you got a major outbreak which spread to Victoria. So whether or not there is a tailored response to things like public health and social measures, or you just need to go all out when you've got a mass event going on, it's hard to say. They Interestingly, they commented on disease modelling. If you remember, the first coronacasters would remember the first year of the pandemic, we were obsessed with modelling that was mm. coming out of the Doherty Institute primarily, but other places as well. And we discussed often on coronacast the limitations of modelling, just how much it was going to say. And the modellers themselves admitted that it, it, the, the, there were limitations in terms of its predictive capacity. And that was emphasised in this evaluation. The good things that happened was that we did, you know, they acknowledged good vaccine technology available, that we had good genomic capacity. So we were able to very quickly discover what variants were travelling around. And that was very good in terms of tracking the outbreaks that occurred in various states, as well as new variants coming into the country. So we, we were, it was pretty impressive then. Of course, what they don't really comment on too much is the fact that that's slipped away now and um, our surveillance system is pretty patchy at the moment, you'd have to assume, given the weaknesses in testing. They also exposed the weakness, they admitted to the weakness in this evaluation of our aged care sector and how really we've had too many deaths in the aged care sector and it could have been prevented. What about vaccines? Well, they do talk about vaccine hesitancy. Julie Leesk from the University of Sydney was one of the authors of this paper and um, they commented on the difficult dilemma that around the AstraZeneca vaccine, the communication of the clotting issue, whether that increased vaccine hesitancy, particularly in the region, and how you might do that better. So outside of Australia, the Pacific region. But also in, you know, the, the, whether or not it increased vaccine hesitancy in Australia as well. So I mean, there, there are issues about how you communicate that, but they do talk about transparency being really important and it's hard to know how else you could have done it without being transparent that there was a problem. So we'll put the link to that paper on the website if you're interested in reading all of the recommendations. But you did mention AstraZeneca just there, Norman. And one of the things that you've teased on this show a couple of times is companies looking at uh, creating intranasal vaccines, so ones that you stick up your nose instead of um, needle in your arm. AstraZeneca's had one, but it's not really performing the way they wanted it to. 
That, that's right. They, they've, this is a very small study, very preliminary study into uh, an intranasal vaccine using exactly the same technology as the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is, is essentially is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is using a viral vector to take the, the genetic message inside cells. And what they found was that it was safe, didn't produce too many side effects. But the problem was that the level of immunity on the surface Again, very small study, very preliminary. But the immune, you, what you hope for from a nasal vaccine is a very high level of immunity and immune protection on the surfaces of the nose and the airways. And what they found was that it barely got to the point where, which of, of the immunity that you might get after a natural infection. And you want a vaccine to be doing better than that. So the reason why you want that protection on the surface cells is because the idea of an intranasal vaccine is perhaps it stops you from getting infected in the first place. That's right. You want to get the basics of the immune response, which is the antibody response and the T-cell response, which has the memory for the next time around and also controlling severe disease. But you want that surface immunity to protect against infection. And that's the game changer. That's what will break this pandemic and stop it in its tracks, in theory, if you could do that. And from this particular vaccine, those first results are a bit disappointing. They may well go on to further research and show that, it, that these initial findings in a small group of people were not accurate and that you get better response when you look at larger numbers of people. But we need to wait and see. So the vaccines that we've still got are the ones that go in a needle in your arm. But we do have the new bivalent Moderna booster. So that's the one that's got a bit of the early Omicron in it, as well as the original strain of the virus. And we were asking people whether they'd managed to get their hands on one or their arm around one. Christian has managed to get six shots. I'm not sure how. But his question to you, Norman, is that whether you agree that Novavax is the single malt scotch of vaccines, smooth and delicate. (laughs) Moderna is like whiskey and now comes in a blend as well as a single malt. Pfizer is bourbon. I don't know what the reason is to that. So you need to decide whether AstraZeneca is whiskey with a Y or whiskey with an EY. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave AstraZeneca behind in, in, in terms of this. I think we've moved on. I I'd, I'd think of it more as the initial shot. You know, you're doing a round of shots in the pub and oh. then what do you do follow up? But mind you, the, the issue with shots is, as anybody you know, I'm going back to university days, if you lined up spirits... <laughs> And I think it was the third shot along. You couldn't tell what you were drinking. Um, And that wasn't because you were drunk, because you just ruined your palate. But (laughs) I think there's a limit to this metaphor. By the way, I'm not endorsing Christian having had six shots here. I mean, that's just going above and beyond the current evidence. So, look, I think that uh, the, the initial shot... At the moment, the evidence is that the mRNA vaccines give you the biggest initial shot. And it looks as though these bivalent vaccines are getting you up there. They're a good chaser. So the mRNA vaccines are giving you the best initial shot. The question is, what's the best next one? So the bivalent vaccines do seem to be pretty good. But there's a lot of chat around about Novavax as a really good booster that it might provide a deeper, broader T-cell response. This is where you've got the memory here and you've got the ability to respond in the future after your antibodies have, have declined. And there's just tantalising suggestions that Novavax gives you, yeah, maybe a single 
Malt response, in other words, a higher quality response that's smoother and underneath, you know, not a peaty malt, but maybe a, a Glen Spey malt. I love it. I love it. Well, on that note, uh, I'll let you get back to your bar, Norman, because that's all we've got time for on CoronaCast today. It, it is indeed. We'll see you next time and just don't drink too much before then. <laughs> see you then. 